One of the prevailing convictions of our culture is captured in the mantra, there is no absolute truth, and of this truth we are absolutely certain. Universal, transcendent truth is out. Pluralistic relativism is in. Each person determines his or her own truth, and anyone even suggesting the idea that there is universal truth, that is truth for all people to embrace, is to be rejected if not really held in suspicion. They're up to something. We gather this morning to proclaim a very different gospel than we hear in our culture. We gather in worship of the one true and living Creator, whose word alone is absolute and untainted truth. We gather in union with the reigning sovereign of the universe, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We gather rejoicing with God's Holy Spirit who is transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ by the sanctifying power of God's revealed truth. So for us, absolute truth is not about getting others to see that our ideas are better than their ideas or that we have some unique right for our ideas to be the predominant view. For us, absolute truth just is. Universal truth descends to us from, hear it again, the one true God who with infinite love counsels us to align our lives with our creative purpose. Our pluralistic world is something like a great orchestra in which all of the musicians gather in this great hall And as they prepare their music, they all decide to play at their own tempo and to start whenever they want and to end whenever they want. It is utter chaos. Our relativistic world is like a football team that gets into the huddle against a very good opponent and the quarterback says, now everyone do whatever feels right to you. Let's go. In the local church, in the church of Jesus Christ that is faithful to His church, we, I hope, are like the musicians of an orchestra who look intently to our divine conductor who is infinitely wise and desires to produce beautiful music through our efforts. We look into His face and we wait upon His every direction. We hear His word as it leads us to this music. And so for our own transformational good and for the glory of our Savior, Eden Baptist Church must defend the absolute truth of God against any who would corrupt that truth with false teaching. There is only one God. And he's having no arguments with himself about what is truth. There is absolute truth. And it comes from the mouth of God. This is an agenda that is commended to us in the Apostle Paul's first letter to his understudy, Timothy. We read at verse 1 of this book that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
We look more carefully at those verses last week, but we find the author Paul, the authoritative apostle, and Timothy, the apostolic delegate at the city of Ephesus, called to heed this word from Paul. Verse 3, as I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We need to stop on these verses 3 and 4 for some time. Really at the heart of this extended paragraph and the one that is to follow. As one under strict orders from God, Paul similarly charges Timothy to stay at Ephesus in order to withstand any teacher who strays from the true doctrine. God is known... And his truth is revealed through the written text of Scripture. And any teacher out of line with that authoritative, objective body of truth was to be charged to stop teaching. This word charge, you are to charge them. Charge certain persons not to teach, verse 3. This word was a military term. To give strict orders to one. Timothy was not to suggest that the false teachers might want to adjust their teaching just a little bit if they didn't mind. He was to order them to stop. Perhaps you have picked up a copy or even own a copy of The Message, a very free-flowing translation of Scripture, paraphrase of Scripture, probably a better idea. Listen how the message translates this verse. Stay right there on top of things so that the teaching stays on track. Is that an accurate description of what this verse says? Stay there so that the teaching stays on track. I think it's a very deficient translation. That's not what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, talk to people face to face and tell them to stop doing what they're doing. Paul anticipated this problem back in the 20th chapter of Acts as he speaks with the Ephesian elders on his last conversation with them. If you'll note there, Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, he gathers from Miletus, he sends to Ephesus and calls the elders of the church to come to him. Acts chapter 20, they gather in verse 28, we get to the core of his teaching to these elders in this Ephesian church that Timothy is now leading. Paul says to them before he leaves, Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Pause and wonder. I know, verse 29, that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among yourselves, from among these elders, there are those who are already leaning in the wrong direction. And Paul says they are going to arise and they are going to teach false doctrine. They must be resisted. 
And so, back in 1 Timothy, Paul calls Timothy to this difficult task. There are certain persons there in the assembly at Ephesus who need to be stopped. They need to be told to stop their teaching. Certain persons. That's a subtle reference, perhaps, even to elders whom Timothy personally knew at Ephesus. And perhaps the church, hearing this, knows who they are. These certain persons, unnamed at this point, As this letter was publicly read, they would have been put on alert as to what Timothy was supposed to do in addressing this false teaching. Where did these teachers go astray? Specifically, verse 4, they are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Myths and genealogies, an approach prevalent among Jewish scholars who obsessed over mythological and allegorical readings of the Old Testament genealogies. You've read the Old Testament genealogies, or at least skimmed them, and you've looked at them and seen all those names that are there, and you really don't find a whole lot of help there sometimes. There's a lot more there than meets the eye, but for these people, they really ran on that thought. There's a whole lot more there than meets the eye. They would read these genealogies, these lists of people, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and they would read in fanciful stories. They specialized in discovering the deeper meaning. The meaning that never met the eye and scoffed at those too blind to see these spiritual wonders. Did you hear this? Did you see this? Do you read this in the text? And they would be arguing with one another and speculating about all that was in these genealogies and coming up with myths and stories and the like. Paul says, Timothy... You're in Ephesus where I've asked you to stay. I want you to stay there and I want you to talk to these people and tell them to stop. Charge these people not to teach different doctrines. Now it's not always enough to address bad teaching. There are times when you have to address bad teachers. You have to talk to them and you have to set them straight. And this is the tough task to which Paul calls Timothy. But why not just let them go? I mean, really, could anything be heard here? They're just reading through genealogies and they're thinking about stories and the like. I mean, is it really that big of a deal? We really have to stop false teachers? Notice with the middle of verse 4. They're giving themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. This is a key thought in this paragraph. We need to hone in on it. God did not save us to waste our days in fanciful speculation. He saved us to fulfill a stewardship by faith. Paul uses this word stewardship routinely in his writings to refer to a believer's God-given responsibility to participate in God's grand plan of salvation. We are participating in that plan. As we come to Christ as Savior and as we proclaim the gospel of Christ, there is a stewardship that has been given to us, a duty that has been given to us. We are, so to speak, to run God's ship and to do the work He's given us to do. Those who live by faith then prioritize disciple-making. That is, proclaiming the gospel of Christ to the unbeliever and nurturing other believers in the faith. This is the task, this is the stewardship, to bring people to Christ, to nurture them in the teachings of God's Word, to see them to grow. 
They see themselves, such people of faith, as partners in God's sovereign purposes to save and to transform people. They enter into His work. Ultimately, then, the goal is not merely to standardize the teaching curriculum of the church or to help people spend their times wisely. There's something much bigger at stake here. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Above all, these false teachers were not just wasting their time. They were on the wrong page. Paul says, as I instruct you in your pastoral duties, Timothy, please know that the ultimate aim is what? The ultimate aim is love. The aim of our charge is love. The final goal of pure doctrine is not a head packed with all the right facts. It's not unified belief within the assembly as such. The final goal of pure doctrine is to love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's where pure doctrine leads. That's what it produces. Notice how verse 5 puts it. The aim of the charge is love that issues from. It comes out of. It flows from these three ideas, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. As such love flows from the source of a pure heart, we consider here our inner being and its right relationship with God. It flows from a good conscience, the inner self-judgment that my behavior is compatible with God's law. Conscience doesn't make up the law. Conscience doesn't, I don't think, ultimately drive us to obey the law, but conscience stands back and looks at our will, our actions, and it parallels it with the teaching of God's Word. A good conscience is one that is saying, I know the truth of God and I know my actions and they line up. And thirdly, it is a sincere faith is at the heart of love. A genuine faith in God, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, producing love in the heart of the believer as that person relates to God and to others. God's objective, authoritative word is revealed in order to transform us into people who love. Why bring that up here? Paul, what are you saying here? Why why is that important? It's a very interesting point, but does it have anything to do with these false teachers? It does. It does. Notice verse 6. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Verse 6 again. They They have swerved from these. From what? They have swerved away from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And by swerving away from these... They go off into the ditch of false doctrine. The error of false teachers is not merely the thoughts in their heads. The problem with false teachers is the holes in their hearts. There's something wrong inside. And it leads to going after knowledge and ideas and philosophies that are not revealed in God's Word. Believing and teaching true doctrine does not guarantee a person will live righteously. Let's say that. That is certainly the case. But those who wander from true doctrine are led by hearts that have already wandered from God. 
The false teachers at Ephesus did not only specialize in myths and endless genealogies, verse 7, but they desired to be teachers of the law. The false teachers at Ephesus styled themselves as experts in the interpretation of Mosaic law. In reality, they were full of hot air, Paul says, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They don't know what on earth they're saying. They don't even know what they're talking about. And their kind is alive and well today. The problem is that they fail to fulfill the stewardship from God. This stewardship to call others to salvation in Christ. This stewardship to grow the believer in the likeness of Christ. And they were dabbling in thoughts and ideas that were taking them away from the truth. And really, in the end, they didn't even know what they were doing. It says to us that stopping false teachers in the local church is an act of love. It is love for God and it is love for people who are given a false directive. Having addressed the need then to stop this false teaching, Paul digresses to consider the proper view of the law. Boy, this is really irritating to all of us, isn't it? Somebody who keeps pointing to the doctrinal failures but never lays out what we're supposed to believe. Never sets it straight. Paul is not to be judged that way. He analyzes these false teachers and some of their motivations, the sinful tendencies in their heart that lead them to mess around with ideas that do not draw them to the true stewardship of God. They are wrong and they need to be stopped. But let's look at the truth of God and apply that truth to what these people are saying. He answers the bad teaching in verse 8. Now, we know, as he goes on a little bit of a digression here on the law, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There's nothing wrong with the law as such, but the law is law, and it must be employed as law. If it's used lawfully, it's fine. Verse 9, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, that is, for those saved by Jesus Christ. It's not for them, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It's not a complete list by any means. But this is what God's law is for. God's law was not intended for the entertainment of would-be teachers. It was issued to convict the sinner of sin and thus highlight the utter necessity of the gospel. The law convicts the sinner of anything, as you notice there at the end of verse 10, that is contrary to sound or healthy doctrine. There is doctrine which leads to spiritual health, and there is doctrine which is messing around and wasting time and, in fact, leading people to debauchery. Let's get the law on track. The law is meant to convict the sinner. He uses some pretty grand sins, we might say here, some of the greater sins, but it's a reminder to us that these are sins in the human condition. And, of course, he catches everything with that whole idea there of whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
The law exposes sin. The word of God and his desires for us expose the sin of the heart. This is how the law is to be used. Not in speculative ideas. Not trying to be teachers. Look into this law and find things there that no one else could find. The point is to convict the sinner that the sinner would come to see the gospel and understand the need of salvation in Christ and transformation in Christ. So get the law doing what it's supposed to be doing, false teachers. Which might mean for many of them they needed to embrace the gospel in the first place. And Paul continues in verse 11, This sound doctrine is in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The saving message of Christ crucified and risen is glorious, and it comes from the God of all blessing. It is this gospel which God commissioned Paul to both proclaim and to defend. And it is this gospel that is our hope And our joy today, it is a tragedy when false doctrine is permitted to distort this gospel. And that is what was happening in the Ephesian church. The battle for true doctrine is always, in the end, a battle for the gospel. Where false doctrine begins to emerge and where it leads off into wrong patterns, it will inevitably lead to a destruction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death for sin and his resurrection power and the sanctifying work that God is doing through the Spirit always, it will end there eventually. The battle for true doctrine is a battle for the gospel. It is the battle for all that God has done for us in Christ and all that his transforming power is doing for us today. Where is this battle in our church? Where are the false teachers in our assembly? Where are those that we must tell to stop and stand up to? Well, our battle's a bit different, isn't it, here in this situation? A very different time and a very different day. The battle is sometimes pitched in the local church. We know of churches, have worked with churches, I've talked and helped other churches who are dealing with false doctrine in their midst. And talk through how to handle that and how to address it. And and our church has had influence in that area at times. It happens. But in our day, churches tend to have a different situation, don't they? I mean, in Ephesus, there's one church. There's the church of Jesus Christ. And come one, come all, whoever's coming through and has an idea and a teaching can join this church, come into this church. Of course, there needed to be a, their saving faith needed to be evidenced, of course. But not always being able to discern that, and perhaps even influenced by teachers on the outside. This is a very different situation. Those who come to our church, we're very pointed in asking them about their conversion experience and seeking to understand their basic doctrinal beliefs. That's important. I think that's what a local church should do in our day and in our time. It was just a lot tougher job when you were at Ephesus. This city of so many roads leading into it and so many connectors to other communities, traveling uh, philosophers and traveling business people, always passing through Ephesus. You never really knew what you were going to be dealing with. So it is a different day. And our doctrinal differences within our assembly are usually small. 
And I think it is also important here, in a word of warning, to not make them bigger than they, than they are. When we come to a church that so carefully identifies itself around a particular doctrinal position, the doctrinal difference that we have are not false teaching, not in the biblical sense of the term. But I think probably for us as a church, the test comes outside the walls of the assembly. It can always come within, and we must always be alert and aware. But I think the test really comes on the outside of our assembly. When solid and faithful Bible teachers differ on points, we do not need to divide, to fight as if there is false doctrine in the wind. In fact, as a church, I think we are to share our opinions and to think and to pray and to not divide over things that are not serious, significant doctrine. There's a lot of things we don't know about the Bible, and we need to have grace along those lines. I'm backing up just a little bit, but let me go on this. There are certain doctrines that people divide over, uh, charge others to be heretical, if they don't agree with them, that is really nothing but division. And we need to be careful that we avoid that. My test is generally this. Is there a difference of opinion on doctrine in which you can line up solid, faithful Bible teachers on either side? If you can do that, that's not something to divide over. Now, it might be an issue that you can't start a church with someone or you can't agree with someone on a particular point and can't work with them because it is significant enough for you. I'm not saying that you dismiss these ideas. But if you have solid, faithful, biblical scholars on either side or believers that you trust on either side of the issue, that's not a place to divide. We might mention, for instance, divorce and remarriage. This is a very tough issue. Everyone's not right. There is a place in God's mind for some to be divorced and remarried, or there's not. Everyone's not right. Some are right and some are wrong on this issue. But you can lay out those who say there is, in some circumstances, a place for divorce and remarriage. You can find faithful, godly, biblical people who love the Lord with all of their heart and believe that on the basis of their understanding of Scripture. And you can find on the other side of the docket here those who say absolutely not. There is never to be a remarriage after a divorce, and there's never to be divorce. Everyone would agree on that. But there's never in any circumstance ever to be remarriage. You have got faithful, godly people. Now, they're not both right. Somebody's not right here. But when there is godliness and faithfulness and people who are seeking to honor the text of Scripture, I think these are matters we don't divide over. And we don't call someone a heretic. Another instance would be the return of Christ. Everybody's not right. Jesus is going to come back when he's going to come back. And it's either going to be before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation, or at the end of the millennium. Those aren't all right opinions. Somebody's missing it here. Somebody is not right here. But you can lay out people who love God with all of their heart, are faithful to the fundamental doctrines of Scripture, who hold all of those views. We may not, in fact, I would argue, it would not be wise for us to start a church with an individual who held to an amillennial position. 
and there's no amillennialists who are knocking on our door wanting to start a church with us. But there are good, faithful, godly people who believe that Jesus will not come back until the end of the millennium. That's not something to divide over. That's not something in this sense. It is not something to charge such individuals with heresy. I think they're flat wrong. And I think there's good reasons to believe that they are wrong. And I would argue my point long and hard that they're wrong. But these are not the kinds of doctrinal differences that should divide us and lead to the charge of heresy. You can fill in a lot of other blanks. But back on to the track now. I mentioned our doctrinal differences when small should be left small and should be left to open discussion and faithful seeking of God's word. There are certain things we're going to have to land on and believe against other people who are also faithful to God's word. But the battle for us, I think, today is really largely pitched outside the church with those who are denying fundamental doctrines of Scripture. And many of these doctrines are being described in the media. They are being described in institutions of higher learning. And they are significant battles. We need to know what is a fight what hill we should die on and where we should not. There is a large world outside the walls of this church. And I would commend us as a church, I think, to be faithful to God's word and to the defense of God's truth, that we need to understand those battles that are going on to some degree, and we need to stand up to false teaching where we hear it. You will hear it on the radio. You will hear it, read it in books and magazines. There are institutions that are presenting ideas and having conferences about these ideas that are false doctrine. We don't have the same situation that Timothy faced in Ephesus, where such people are walking consistently into the doors of our church and striving to gain adherence for their teaching. But it's out there, and we need to be aware of it. For us, the battle a bit different, but very, very real. And how do we address this battle? I think there's probably a lot of things that we don't do, but let's just talk on the positive end of things. First of all, we need to advance Bible knowledge. There is a project that is going on in this church at all times to teach the Word of God. There are teachers of children. There are teachers of young people. There are teachers of various groups within our church. There is the teaching of the entire assembly gathered together. We need to continue to learn the truth of God's Word to know it so well that we recognize immediately false doctrine. Let's continue to advance Bible knowledge in our assembly. I think secondly, we need to emphasize active love and purity of heart as transformational evidences of true doctrine. We must never let this go. The true doctrine changes the heart. A person comes to faith in Christ, and then lives out that faith in such a way that love flows from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Somebody who has a lot of doctrinal knowledge and is not living that out within their life is to be held in suspicion. Where the life begins to alter 
from this love that God seeks to produce within our heart, false doctrine will follow soon enough if it's not already rooted. Thirdly, I think that we need to resist the relativism of our day, recognizing the truth of God is just and that it is our invaluable treasure. It's hard in some respects in this culture to hold this line, this objective, universal truth to which all people must submit. We have no other option on the one hand, and secondly, why would we want to exercise any other option? There is one true God, there is His truth which has been revealed to us, and it is our joy and our privilege to say there's one true God who issues His word to us. This is our hope. This is our strength. This is where we find our life. And all around we find churches that continue to capitulate to this pluralistic relativism that is everywhere around us. We cannot give in to that because we are selling everyone short when we do. We have got to learn to speak the truth in love. And I've tried to offer some of that balance. There's places of disagreement that need to be left to exist. There's places of disagreement where we are called to love one another and understand one another and to realize that God's Word does not say everything as definitively as other things. But on the other hand, we need to be bold. We need to be willing as a church to stand up to false doctrine, which leads inevitably to a destruction of God's truth. What are some of those doctrines today? We have addressed many of them within our assembly, particularly on Sunday nights and in our teaching time. But the doctrine of God is under attack today. Are you aware of this? The doctrine of God's foreknowledge, for instance, in open theism. Does God know all things or is he figuring things out? As I've told others, as I work my way through Exodus, one of the most helpful commentaries that I used was a man who continued to purport open theism throughout the commentary. I threw out all those ideas, and if I ever had a chance to talk to him about it, I'd, I'd like to talk to him about it. I don't know who he is. The great commentary. But it's filled with this idea, and it, that's a scary thought. Here is a commentary that does very well at understanding themes in the book of Exodus, that, which is also pushing this agenda that God really doesn't know what's coming up next around the corner. He's figuring it out as he goes. There are a lot of people who believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior who are embracing this doctrine. That God does not know the future, that he's figuring it out with us, and that we, in fact, are part of that process of determining the future with him. And they don't ever say it, but really for him. It's alive, and it needs to be addressed. God is sovereign over all things. As we talked about at our dinner table last night, he never forgets and he never learns. He knows all. Do we know this God? Do we hold him high? The doctrine of justification is under attack. Do we recognize as an assembly that there are institutions of higher learning within the evangelical orbit that are putting out information saying that the idea of God killing his son is child abuse? And they are severing the very root of justification. They are taking the gospel and turning it on its head because of the philosophies of our day, the expectations of our culture, and they are destroying 
The substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be a member in this church without believing in the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not even be able to form those words in your mouth or to define them specifically. But this concept that Jesus Christ in fact bore the wrath of God his Father is precious biblical truth. It is truth that we must maintain. It is truth that we must defend. It is truth, in fact, that is at the heart of our salvation. Without it, there's no salvation. Jesus did not bear our sin in his body. He did not suffer the wrath of God. Then what did he do? The Bible teaches that Jesus is the Lamb of God and that he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may be healed by our great shepherd. We must defend these truths. There are godless truths, godless teachings that are out there concerning how men and women should relate, concerning sexuality, which really spins off of that whole male-female discussion and what is appropriate sexuality, and what is not. These are matters we must address, matters we must understand, and truth that we must defend. There is false doctrine that is rampant concerning sanctification, how a person comes to faith in Christ and then grows in that faith. There are individuals who are seeking to grow in Christ if you took their Bible away and you took away a biblical framework for sanctification, they'd never miss it. They've been in our church. They've been through this place so influenced by the thinking of the world that their whole paradigm for Christian growth is secular or worse. To this false teaching, we must stand up. Go back to that picture of the orchestra. We must be like musicians in an orchestra. Graciously but zealously following our divine conductor who is infinitely wise and directs us with perfect love. Picture yourself there looking into his eyes ready to do as he bids. And when there are those who think, I can start when I want, I can end when I want, I can play at whatever tempo I want, they need to be graciously and zealously corrected. We cannot define truth for ourselves. We must submit to the truth of God's Word. All who deviate from the true doctrine are destroying the concert, and they need to be stopped. And all of us who long for the Director to guide us need to love truth, to learn it, to grow in it, to emphasize it, to look at what its true result is in the purity of heart that God commends, and to thank God for all of our days that there is one God, not billions who determine truth for themselves. There is one God who has loved us enough to send his word, to convey his truth, that we might be rescued, and that we might walk in intimate fellowship with him. May we never Give up that ship. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you. Our Father, we need you. 
we probably certainly need you much more than we know. We do not know what the days hold in the future. We do not know what battles there will be to fight. We do not know what false doctrine will have to be addressed that will tear apart and destroy your truth. But I pray, God, that you would find this church faithful to stand. We need your help to be discerning. Where is it that good people are simply wrong and need to be corrected? Where is it that we need to permit differences of opinion? And though defending your truth as we see it and understand it, remaining open to change, to live with it. And God, where should we ne- what should we not live with? We don't always know. But we appeal to you that you would change our church, develop us, mature us, and strengthen us to be discerning, to know where to tolerate differences of teaching, to be discerning, to know when false teaching is in fact destroying the very foundations of your word. I pray, God, that you'll guide us. I pray that you would keep false doctrine from our assembly. That we would be purifying ourselves from within and that you would be protecting us from without. God, we have a particular trial and I bring it before you in prayer. We have so many voices outside the church and we need to hear them. We don't want to become isolated a fortress mentality where we hear only our own inner conversation. But Father, among these voices, there are those that are hearing false doctrine and not knowing it. There are those that are purchasing books and reading books that are leading them in the wrong direction. There are teachers on the radio and on the television who are contrary to the true doctrine. God, we pray for discernment. Pray that you will help us to know the truth, to know where we can listen to broader voices and discern legitimate differences and then to know where the false teacher has stood up. God, I pray that we'd be faithful to fight it and that you would help us here in this assembly to continue to proclaim the truth of God and to seek to establish the true doctrine in all of our classes and studies, our preaching and teaching times. May your word predominate, and may we be faithful in our interpretation of it. We need your spirit, we need your help, we need your guidance. Forgive us of any who think that this is easy. Forgive us of any who think that, they, that all truth dies with them. Forgive us, Father, for being unfaithful and dabbling with things we shouldn't dabble with. Forgive us, dear Father, for failing to stand up for the truth. With all of our confessions, we pray that you would guide and strengthen us and we give you thanks for the word of God. Thank you for the truth that has been delivered to us and may we be faithful to protect it and to see it transform us by your grace. It's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen.